If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 633. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. The YouTube page is great. It has a new feature. There's a little heart under the video. You can click on that little heart. It's a thanks heart. So if you like any of the videos there and you want to contribute financially to the show, just click on that little heart and you can do it. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Head to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook with the same title read by yours truly. You've already heard about McClanahan Academy. You can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com where you can throw me a few pennies if you like the podcast. So all those different methods support the show. And as always, Send me those show requests. I'd like to hear what you want to hear. And today is actually that type of episode, right? So a couple of people sent me some things. I'm going to combine these together to make what I think is a very interesting episode. Now, my latest class at McClanahan Academy is 25 people who changed America. And two of the individuals in that class were George Washington and John Brown. So I'm going to put those two together today because they're both sort of in the news. And I think this particular podcast is going to discuss the soul of America. What I mean by that is you have two visions of America. You have the proposition nation vision, and of course you have the opposite of that. And conservatives are constantly wrestling with themselves over what type of vision they want for America. And you see this. The Straussians, as I've talked about in this podcast many, many times, believe in the proposition nation. And if you believe in the proposition nation, then you have to think John Brown is one of the most important individuals to ever live in American history. In fact, we should be celebrating John Brown. I mean, look, the Battle Hymn of the Republic is based on the tune for John Brown's body. And so a lot of people don't know that. What they're singing about is essentially homicide, right? So when you go to your church and they play the Battle Hymn of the Republic and everybody rallies around and cries and everything else, you're playing a tune or you're singing to a tune that at its core was about slaughter. And I think that that's something we have to reconcile with, right? I mean, the, the uh, author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Howe, is not someone that we should be celebrating. She is a vicious cultural imperialist. In fact, if you are celebrating the Battle Hymn of the Republic, you're celebrating leftism. This is what people that celebrate the proposition nation on the right don't realize what they're doing. They're essentially adopting the leftist vision of America. And we have John Brown as an example of that. It's why he's in the class that I gave you. In fact, John Brown is a Christ-like figure to many people on the left, at least back at the time when he was on the left in the 19th century. You see, John Brown was a leftist. John Brown was not a conservative. John Brown had a different vision of America than the original founding. And then the other side of that, you have, of course, George Washington, a man who really exemplified the founding generation. Now, Washington was not someone who was pro-slavery. In fact, he was a slave owner. 
And he was what we consider today a racist because everybody was in the 18th century and 19th century. Of course, Washington died in 1799, never made it to the 19th century. But everybody was. You would be hard-pressed to find just about anybody in the founding generation that wasn't. I mean, there's a few. You could say, uh, you know, Aaron Burr wasn't a racist. You could, I mean, he was an active abolitionist. And in contrast to someone like Alexander Hamilton, who was a faux abolitionist, right? But there were many people that embraced slavery in the founding period, thought it was just a normal thing. They didn't like it necessarily, and they wanted it perhaps extinguished, but uh, Washington was counted among that number. Though George Washington, at the end of the war, was not very happy about the fact that the British would not return slaves back to the United States, the free and independent states that they had captured during the war and were sending off to Canada. He, in fact, uh, was uh, quite incensed that they wouldn't do that. That was not part of the deal. But Washington was uh, enlightened for his time. He thought that slavery should gradually end. Uh, he did not free the slaves, uh, his wife's slaves, for example, when he died because he thought that could potentially produce problems for her. There could be an insurrection, maybe, <clears throat> on his plantation because these slaves had not, uh, if he freed them, what would happen? So Washington, uh, for the left, for the Wokies, Washington is not good enough. He was a racist. He was a slave owner. On the other hand, George Washington is the most important man in American history, regardless of what people like Philip Holmes have to say about it, which I'll talk about in a minute. George Washington, there would be no America without George Washington. There would be no independent states without George Washington. He was the glue that held the Federal Republic together. Everyone trusted him. Jefferson trusted him. And Alexander Hamilton trusted him. In fact, you know, those two factions were what Washington was most concerned about and why he was so, uh, he pressed so hard for his farewell address in 1796. But Washington understood that the United States to secure independence um, had to do certain things and it had to, and to maintain union and to maintain that independence had to be a real union. Just as other founding members of the founding generation recognized that too, and I'm going to talk about a book uh, in, in this way tomorrow on the podcast. But Washington favored union, and he favored a union of all the states. And in these states, you had different views on slavery. And in these states, you had different views on culture and tradition. It was a real union, a real federal republic. And the union would not exist without the South. And Washington wanted to ensure that the South stayed part of the union. Now, at that time, the South was often considered basically two states. South Carolina and Georgia. North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, of course, were all slaveholding states as well. In fact, in 1776, every state was a slaveholding state when Washington was uh, tapped to be commander of the Continental Army. It wasn't until after the war that you started seeing abolition take hold in the North. And in Massachusetts, for example, it wasn't done through the Constitution. John Adams' original draft of the Massachusetts Constitution was a pro-slavery constitution. It wasn't until a court order essentially ended slavery in Massachusetts that you started seeing it go away. And you had a pretty rough perspective on indentured servitude and other things in New England and the mid-Atlantic states when it came to slavery. New Jersey did not officially abolish slavery until 1865 with the 13th Amendment. So the North was just as tied into slavery as anywhere else. It just, over time, they were able to gradually abolish the institution, whereas the South did not. So this is a, a interesting part of American history. But because of that, you have people that want to cancel George Washington. Now, 
In 2015, when we had the idiot Dylan Roof go out and do what he did in Charleston, and now we had this other moron in Buffalo do what he did at a grocery store. I mean, these people are just completely insane. They are, they are mentally ill, and even if they say they're not, they are. But you had, after 2015, I was interviewed, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, interviewed by the Christian Science Monitor. And the question was, what do you see happening? And I said, look, this is just the beginning. This is low-hanging fruit. Robert E. Lee is going to be first, and Confederate monuments, and Jefferson Davis, and eventually John C. Calhoun, which, by the way, is the topic of my next class at McLean Academy, John C. Calhoun. They're going to come next. But then after that, the revolution won't be complete. You're going to have to go after Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and George Washington. You're going to have to go after the Constitution and the Declaration because, you see, the Declaration was written by a slave owner who didn't really believe in the proposition nation. And this is the premise of the 1619 Project. You see, it all is filtering out now. What they really want, what the critical race theorists and the Wokies and the 1619 Project people, what they really want is a recreation of America. They want America to begin when everything that would anyway be tied to the institution of slavery or race by a bunch of old dead white guys is gone. They want it gone. They want America to be refounded based on something else. And they want to pick their heroes. And one of their heroes would be John Brown. Another, of course, would be Frederick Douglass or W.B. Du Bois or, or Sojourner Truth. I mean, take your pick of the, uh, the conspicuous people that are often uh, you know, celebrated, Harriet Tubman, uh, Martin Luther King, whatever it is, to be the people that we have to talk about for American history. You see, because those are the real heroes in America, everyone else is an anti-hero. And George Washington happens to be an anti-hero because he was a slave owner. This is laughable on its face, but this is the kind of stuff that's being at least discussed in the Academy. And when the Washington Post publishes an idiotic op-ed in its newspaper, in the newspaper, the Washington Post publishes an op-ed from a student at George Washington University advocating the name change of George Washington University. Because you see, George Washington was a slave owner and a racist, so we can't have him anymore. On the other hand, you have a tweet by Philip Holmes, who is the son-in-law of Vody Bachman. Now, Vody Bachman is a pretty prominent individual in American evangelical Christianity. I say that he lives overseas, uh, but he has been discussed as potentially the leader of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's not certain he could do it because he doesn't live in the United States. But the fact is his son-in-law, Philip Holmes, wrote this tweet on, um, that was just about a week ago, not even a week ago. He said, happy birthday to one of the most controversial heroes in our nation's history, John Brown, Christian, Calvinist, abolitionist, and in my opinion, the greatest white American man to ever live. Now, this is why I have John Brown and 25 People Who Changed America. I've got a number of quotes that are in line with this in that particular class about John Brown, going all the way back to the 19th century. See, after John Brown was executed, there was a concerted effort from people in New England to make John Brown a martyr, to make John Brown a saint. John Brown became the symbol of New England. And uh, there was a book written by Tom Fleming uh, just before he died. This is the historian Tom Fleming, not the Chronicles magazine Tom Fleming. 
And he blamed the abolitionists for the war, and people got very upset about this. Uh, and because they said, my gosh, this is just a bunch of racist tripe. You know, Tom Fleming was not a racist. But he was going back and looking at rhetoric. And he, he took a direct line to the abolitionists and said, look, this is the problem. You have people that are inflaming passions on both sides. It's a very small percentage of the population. Look, abolitionists might have been 1% of the population, maybe. I mean, I don't think you could, you could say that they were a very large percent of the American population. You certainly have people who are anti-slavery, but they weren't abolitionists. They just didn't want it around. This is basically the Midwest. You know, we're, we're anti-slavery. We're also anti-black. We don't want black Americans to live here. Places like Illinois and Ohio and others had passed exclusionary laws, which made it illegal to live in those states unless you paid a fine in some, in some cases. So it, it was a very steep fine. Most people couldn't afford it. So the fact is you have a situation where you have anti-slavery, which is also anti-black. You had very few abolitionists. Abolitionists were run out of town. Abolitionists were seen to be radicals. And John Brown was that. Now, John Brown was also a number of other things. And I don't want to steal all my thunder for the class. You need to take 25 people who changed America. Because, I, again, I covered George Washington and John Brown in that class. But John Brown was also other things. He was a, a failure in many ways. I mean, John Brown failed at every business he ever tried. Every one. He also had over 20 kids through two wives. Uh, but he, he failed at everything. In fact, one historian essentially pegged him as an opportunist. He was a money-grubbing opportunist. And when he was funded by the Secret Six to go lead a slave insurrection in Virginia, the general theory is that John Brown was basically doing it for the money. He wasn't really committed to the cause. He would certainly at times say the right things. But he was in it for the money. He was in Kansas for the money. Now, this is where I get into the fact that John Brown cannot be the greatest white American man to ever live unless you enjoy homicidal maniacs. John Brown was a murderer. We overlook this part of John Brown's history. It wasn't just that what he did in Harper's Ferry, which, by the way, the first guy killed was a black guy. Now, people try to poo-poo this and say, well, that, that guy probably would have supported John Brown if he knew who he was, but he thought he was somebody else, and so he got shot. We don't know that. We don't know that at all, what this guy would have done. But the fact is, John Brown, ex we'll leave that aside. John Brown in Kansas, at Pottawatomie Creek, murdered Kansians in their sleep. Right? This wasn't some type of battle. I mean, bleeding Kansas is often held up as, we've got these battles in Kansas. This is the early Civil War. I guess if you count murder as part of the early Civil War... Okay, but John Brown went out and killed people in their sleep. Murdered them. And this is somehow the greatest white American man to ever live? Above George Washington, who was an honorable man? Who was the indispensable man? Who was regarded as the father of his country? This is just complete garbage. But this is what we have. But see, the thing is, if you are supremely committed to the proposition nation then John Brown has to be your guy because he was committed ostensibly to the proposition nation. George Washington was not. George Washington didn't believe in equality. George Washington didn't believe in equity. George Washington believed in racism and slavery. John Brown did not. John Brown was Jesus Christ in America. And so if that's the case, 
then you have to be a committed John Brown fanatic. You have to sing John Brown's body and walk around singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic. You have to be Alan Gelzo. This is what you have to be, right? You have to genuflect to Lincoln and spread holy water on John Brown's statue and Abraham Lincoln's statue because you're worshiping these individuals. Now, you could say that you're worshiping Christianity and Calvinism and whatever else. And you see, the other thing is, of course, the abolitionists, now you have, uh, and this gets into a lot of other political issues, including the Roe v. Wade issue, which I'll talk about in another podcast this week as well, a couple of other issues with that. The Supreme Court and also somebody bringing up the 13th Amendment with this. So I'll get into that in a minute. Or, well, not in a minute, but this week. We're going to talk about that. Big topic, of course. But you've got people that are celebrating John Brown as the greatest American ever. What does that say about George Washington? Well, that puts Washington in a lower echelon. Washington because he's racist. And so, I mean, listen to the rhetoric in this piece by Caleb Francois. Last year, George Washington's university, George Washington University's, I'm sorry, Cloyd Heck Marvin Center, named for a segregationist, was renamed the University Student Center in response to student calls for a name change. The name change streamlined with calls for racial justice in a modern era in which students across the country are demanding change. As our nation's history of slavery, Jim Crow and redlining and other discriminatory policies toward African Americans has never been fully addressed or atoned for, these pleas for racial justice are a reflection of a shifting paradigm in American politics in which compromise and intolerance are no longer an option. However, the, remaining, uh, the renaming of the University Student Center falls short in addressing the main issue of systemic racism and inequality still present on campus. Then he goes into a little bit of the history of the university, because you see, in 1821, enrollment was, restrict was restricted to white men. Now think about that for a second. In 1821, how many universities were open to anybody but white men in 1821? I don't know the exact number, but I would surmise it's somewhere around zero. <laughs> so this is just complete stupidity. Uh, it might have been more than zero. I don't know. But uh, when you look at universities open to anybody but white men, it's going to be a very low number in 1821. Then in 1954, there was a push for segregationist policies. And today, only 10% of the university's population are black students. Now, the black population in America is around 13%. So it's a little shy of the overall black population in America, but pretty much in line with where the demographics sit in the United States. So that's not unreasonable. 10%, maybe it was 15%. That's unreasonable. But this, this individual thinks that because Washington, D.C. is a majority black city, that the university itself has to be a majority black university. That's not the way it works. Generally, these universities take applications from students and they accept students, but, uh, you know... First of all, um, quotas are generally considered to be illegal, right? So you can't really do that. But regardless, uh, he also complains about there aren't enough black professors, that they don't have a black president of the school, no African languages are taught there. Now, that part of it was a little bit surprising to me. Uh, usually the languages, um, the languages taught at these universities reflect the languages that are going to be used in, say, business studies or other things. This is what they this is what they generally try to do. 
and uh, African languages are not popular languages in the international world. So you're going to get the popular languages. Many of them, are, of course, are going to be European languages. But no African languages. Fine. I mean, have African languages taught if you can get somebody to teach them and you can get students to take them. That's the other issue. Uh, people don't realize that universities are businesses. And if people aren't taking the classes, then, of course, you're not going to have these classes survive. So you can want to teach the Habsburgs, for example. When I was at in university, there was a professor there that taught the Habsburgs. His classes never made, so he never got to offer those classes. He, so he had to teach other things that he didn't like because that was uh, those are the classes that made. I mean, you have to teach the classes that students want to take. And maybe no students want to take African languages. I don't think he's ever really thought about that. But this is, he, he continues on to this. He says, but it's not just the university's name that's a problem. Just blocks on the main campus is the Mount Vernon campus, named for George Washington's former slave plantation. Now, Mount Vernon is one of the jewels of the United States. If anything, I mean, you're, you're in a city named for George Washington and a university named for the man, you should have a Mount Vernon campus. But no, no, this is a slave plantation. So every day, hundreds of black students walk on a campus uh, named after an enslaver of men, and study at a name named after study at a site named after dark parts of history. So you see, if we just got rid of that, we would uh, we would cleanse ourselves of this problem. Now, what's funny about this is you have people, the wokies, some wokies, are very upset with that uh, we can't talk about slavery and white supremacy anymore. Uh, because critical race theory is being banished from schools. On the other hand, they want to get rid of anything that might remind them of slavery or white supremacy. So what is it? What do you want? It would seem that would be a teachable moment, right? Oh, here's Mount Vernon. Uh, well, what about Mount Vernon? You want to contextualize these things. See, the real issue is contextualization. But again, that's that's all this is just gobbledygook, right? These people are so confused about everything, they don't really know what they're doing. They just don't like it. And because they don't like it and it hurts their feelings, it has to go. Even though George Washington, again, for all of American history, it didn't matter if you were a northerner, a southerner, you loved George Washington. And George Washington was very mild in what he believed uh, uh, about the institution of slavery at the time. Uh, so this guy wants to take care of the Winston Churchill Library, uh, the theme, Hail the George Washington, uh, all of this needs to go. All of that needs to go. You can't have any of these things. Now, Winston Churchill is interesting. You know, I could... Winston Churchill, right? A Brit? Eh. I mean, that shouldn't be at George Washington University. I, I could be fine with that. But when you have George Washington University and you have Mount Vernon, these things are logical. So he's saying, look, what we need to do is name the school after Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass needs... This seems to be Frederick Douglass University. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some dopes, some idiots, thought this was a good idea. I mean, this guy certainly does. This mental nincompoop certainly does. It shows it's a reflection of the quality of students at George Washington University. This actually is, I mean, if anybody read this and they had half a brain, they would say, I'm not going there. If this is what they're churning out of that school, why would I even go there? Now, maybe the leftists will go there. But anybody with a brain is not a leftist, so they wouldn't go to George Washington University. This should this is very bad publicity for the school. But I mean, come on. 
this this situation, why, look, Frederick Douglass, fine. You want to have something? Have a new university named Frederick Douglass University. Why not? Uh, create new institutions if you want to, but don't rename this one. Uh, that's, but this is why I said John Brown against George Washington. George Washington is a bad guy now to the Wokies. John Brown is a good guy to the Wokies. And there's very few. Malcolm X had a quote in the, in the I don't want to, again, steal the thunder for this lecture, but I've got a quote from Malcolm X, which, by the way, Philip Holmes has Malcolm X on his Twitter account. Malcolm X said, look, John Brown is the only white guy the only white guy that I could consider supporting in American history. That's it. Why? Because he was violently anti-slavery. So if this is what we're celebrating, violence, homicide, because that's what you're celebrating with John Brown, what does that say about the future of this kind of rhetoric in America? When we see things happening, uh, the violence, we just saw it in Buffalo, uh, we've seen it uh, with the with the guy that ran over people at the parade. I mean, when we're seeing racial violence, right? What does this say about it? If you're going to glorify John Brown, <clears throat> a homicidal maniac, well, that's essentially what you're going to get. And so we have to be very careful about this. And I think if you're a Christian, you can't support John Brown. There's no way. You can't do it. You could say that there are other anti-slavery people that uh, perhaps, uh, or other abolitionists, even if you want to go that far, other abolitionists that, uh, might be more palatable. They weren't violent. Though in the, in the 19th century, abolitionists were very, very violent, and many of them. And so this is where you get into the situation where you have uh, these positions that are um, not in line with discourse and coming up with solutions to things in a peaceful way. Uh, that would be, I mean, look, all of this, right? The war itself was violent. Did it have to happen? I mean, we, we can talk about that. Did the war have to happen? Could the South have been let go in peace? And you would have had a United States still. You would have had a Confederate States. And eventually, maybe you would have seen a reunification at some point. You would have had seven states out of the Union, not, not eventually 11. Uh, you would have had, uh, or you could even say 14, if you want to go that far. Um, you would have had, or 13. You would have had... Um, <clears throat> you would have had a different type of situation here in North America, but maybe there would have been a reunification at some point. Slavery would have ended. Heck, Lincoln was allow, uh, willing to allow it to exist until the 1890s. I mean, so he was pushing it out 30 years or so. Is Lincoln going to be canceled because of that? I think that there were Wilkies who would cancel Lincoln. This is the issue, right? John Brown versus George Washington. Both men changed America. One uh, in a positive direction, the other not so much, uh, when you look at his tactics and the ultimate outcome of what he was trying to do, certainly ending slavery, a good thing, but the way that he was going about it and how it came about, uh, we, can, we can be very critical of that because it didn't have to go that way. All right, so I thought this was both interesting and a nice teachable moment and a great way to talk about 25 People to Change America. Get that class, by the way. I think you're going to love both lectures on George Washington and John Brown. I'll see you tomorrow for the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.